This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Now, there are a lot of discussions going on about a vaccine and the race for a vaccine. A lot of news coverage over the weekend. Um, And our next guest and his team have been facing the virus from day one in this country. The first U.S. case of the virus actually confirmed in Washington State at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett. Massive hospital system overall. Dr. Rod Hockman is president and CEO of Providence Health. He joins us on the phone from Seattle. Dr. Hockman, nice to have you back with us. Hope you guys are doing well. Well, help us. We always kind of lean on you to kind of make sense of some of the headlines that are out there. Uh, And as you see this race for the virus, what's what should we as individuals expect realistically about how we get there and when we get there? Oh, sure. And I I think the best way to think about I was just talking to a group of folks that try to, you know, they say every time we listen, you know, on TV, uh, you know, we, we don't know who to believe. So I think it starts out with you know, we're going to get better at treating this virus. So you saw with remdesivir now being approved. And, you know, we, our first patient that we had in the United States, we actually treated with remdesivir three months ago. And what we're going to see are some other medications that are going to be added to that in kind of a cocktail mm-hmm. to see if we can really improve patients that get sick and hopefully prevent death. So that's one thing that I think the public can start to say, wow, that's a good tranche of research and work that's going on. On the other side of it is the race for the vaccine, where, you know, there's probably more than 15 trials that are ongoing, which is fantastic. And we have a lot of cooperation going on between the scientists with the different trials out there. And to kind of explain it to listeners, it's, it's picking different parts of the virus and seeing which one of those parts is going to give you immunity. And so that, in simple terms, you know, why would there be 15 different trials? Because they're also all looking at different aspects of the virus to see which ones seem to be, as I would say, the most immunogenic and the ones that can confer immunity. So, and then there's a, an issue of whether you use DNA or RNA, which from your, you know, biology from high school uh, has all different consequences. There are some companies that are looking for a faster turnaround on their vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still, we're cautiously hopeful about that, but, uh, you know, that remains to be seen. You know, so the, the most optimistic estimates are sometime in the late fall towards the end of the year, and the most realistic are probably in the first quarter of next year mm-hmm. uh, for a vaccine. Uh, that, that's what that's what most of us right. are looking at in, in, the, in the clinical and scientific community. And so, Dr. Hockman, as you look across the country and, and you draw on the experience that you've had there in Washington state, you see this sort of checkerboard that we keep describing of you know different states sort of coming back at different times. But part of that is a response to how the virus has played out in different geographies, different urban areas versus suburban versus rural what makes the most sense in terms of the medical side and in terms of what we should be doing before we have a vaccine? What, what makes the most sense? Sure. Yeah, I, I just talked uh, to the business roundtable on Friday, 
we were trying to make some sense for the CEOs around the country about what they should do. And it's all very, very dependent upon your geography and your density. So when I think about, you know, giving advice to different organizations and companies, the first question I ask are, where are you in the country? Because it'll make a difference depending on where those states and localities are on the curve of number of cases. And then the second thing that's really important is the density of the work environment. So are you able to spread people out? Can you spread customers out? Can you do some of that? Which will help really, really decrease risk and exposure. So it's almost, you almost have to go through a checklist of the things that you do in your business or where you are to kind of understand what the best practices are. And some of us are, we're actually putting together kind of some of those guidelines so that these are the things that you look for and these are the things that will decrease your risk significantly. And then a little bit of this is going to be, we've got to see what happens in the country. We're going to learn a lot. Certain places will teach us a lot. In our, in our environment, Alaska is wide open and open for business. Um, you know, again, not a lot of density, but we're also going to learn a lot by doing that. What are the things that we have to look out for? What about something like mass transportation in a city like New York? How do you see that moving forward? Wow, that is a tough one. That is a really, really hard one to think about. Uh, because those are the situations where, you know, if you ask me as a physician, that worry us the most. When you've you know, got a crowded subway car that has a few hundred people in it in close proximity, uh, how do you do that? And I don't know whether it's going to take limiting some of that transportation. Obviously, everyone wearing a mask, because there's no question that if everyone wore a mask, it will decrease significantly the transmission rate of this virus, even if they're not in 95 masks that people have on. So some of that, and then, you know, you know not touching anything. Uh, if I got on a subway, as soon as I got off, I'd be, you know, washing my hands, doing all those kinds of things. So I think we're going to have to make some accommodation and probably limiting, you know, we can't have a packed subway car. So are there ways that we can kind of limit the number of people? But those are going to be some of the tough ones that we're going to have to solve. Yeah, it's such a good point. I mean, this whole question of density, I think, is certainly very front of mind for those of us here in the tri-state area. Dr. Rod Hockman, thank you so much. Really just great insights. President and CEO of Providence St. Joseph Health joining us on the phone from Seattle, Carol. And the other thing he said, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see what happens as we reopen to see, do we all of a sudden get a spike in cases or have we created some kind of herd immunity? Although we use that phrase, we have to be very careful about how we use it. And I think also comparing and contrasting what happens in different regions and trying to figure out what the variables are is really, really important. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Uh, he's a Jedi in his own right. Kevin Cirilli, <laughs> our chief Washington correspondent, uh, joining us from Washington, keeping track of all the comings and goings. The next leg of the stimulus, it ain't going to be easy, Kev. What's no, going on? It's not. Did you guys see what President Trump said the other night? He says that he's on board for a next round of economic stimulus looking in, in the next month or so or early summer, provided it include the payroll tax cut. So the payroll tax cut is is the bargaining chip from the White House. And they say no deal 
unless they include the payroll tax cut. So looking beyond that in terms of where this goes from here. Well, remind us exactly what the payroll tax cut is. Well, it would allow for businesses in order to qualify for, for large businesses and medium-sized businesses as well to qualify for some, some tax relief uh, as it relates to keeping some individuals on their, on their payroll. And so especially at a, at a time in which the account, people are having this conversation about furloughs and laying people off, uh, many of these businesses on Main Street and Wall Street, they want to make sure uh, that that you know that they're going to be able to have that. This actually happened if you think pre-COVID. This was a another debacle during the Obama White House, but also pre-COVID during the tax uh, the tax debate. But another thing that I'm really interested in is where the conversation shifts in terms of policy uh, with uh, China. And, yes. and how Democrats and Republicans, this is becoming increasingly a nonpartisan issue. Yeah. So tell us more about that, because we're going to have a big deep dive into China at the top of the hour with uh, Andy Brown. What's the political side of this, Kev? Well, the political side is, is threefold. First and foremost, from a from a congressional standpoint, there is a host of different legislation that was that existed prior to covid. But even during this is getting re-upped. It relates to 5G and businesses in, in the United States being able to do business with European companies that might be. Uh, you know, working with Huawei and other mm-hmm. Chinese uh, firms. Uh, and secondly, from a higher education standpoint, there could be new regulatory structures domestically uh, pertaining to China's ability to uh, impact higher education. And mm-hmm. finally, I would you cannot talk about this at, in an election year without mentioning the presidential election. And so I think you're going to hear the administration, and you heard this from President Trump in his Fox News town hall last night, increasingly taking a tougher tone uh, against China and Beijing as he did with with regards to tariffs. But from the Democratic perspective in Biden's orbit, they're going to say that this is why they would argue they should come in and be able to have a better relationship with Europe uh, so that the U.S. and Europe can work together to combat some of the uh, inconsistencies, to put it mildly, coming from from, uh, Beijing. I got to say, I don't know if any of you saw 60 Minutes over the weekend. I mean, I it, was all, it was all about, right, you know, the impact of the virus. It was gut-wrenching, to say yes. the least, in terms of small business owners, you know, people still waiting on checks. And then the whole piece about farmers, who we know already got some aid earlier, um, you know, from the Trump administration because of tariffs be- and the fight between uh, U.S. and China. And yet, you know, they're not getting, especially the smaller players, not getting assistance. I do think any increased t- trade tensions, we're talking about another hit to the economy potentially here and it's such a good point because if you think back to when we were covering the u.s and china and how uh beijing really saw the heartland america as Mm -hmm. as a a way to specifically get the president's attention because that's his the base of his political coalition and so you're absolutely right it looks like we're headed towards more of a uh, more volatility on the u.s china economic front and one more thing that i would i I should mention is that the world health organization and Mm -hmm. there is a a, a legislation bipartisan but also coming from intelligence community sources and from the administration obviously questions about uh, xi jinping's relationship with the world health organization and vice versa yeah, and all of that is sort of backdrop or maybe uh, foreground to this very uh, difficult relationship that we're seeing continue between President Trump and President Xi. Kevin Cirilli always made it. He works at, as Tom Keene would say, such a high velocity that yeah. you just get it, – it, it's like – I'm convinced he doesn't sleep. You, but you just jam so much in know, in a, a very short amount of time. Love that guy. Yeah. Uh, and he's also very fun to follow on uh, Twitter, uh, as you know, Kev Cirilli, at, yeah. at Kev Cirilli. 
Lot, really l- lots of uh, lots of flexing, <laughs> lots of the little flexing emojis. Uh, it's good. It's good. All right. Kevin Surley is our chief Washington correspondent. As you heard Charlie mention, if you're in the D.C. area, check out his show. It's called Sound On. Uh, it's on Bloomberg 99.1 in D.C. at 5 p.m. Wall Street time. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master along with Jason Kelly. And I feel like, Jason, a little bit of what we just talked to for our New York audience about the Amazon engineer who quit in protest about how Amazon is treating some of its workers fits into this next story. It's in the magazine this week, and it's really fascinating because throughout this virus pandemic, we've been talking about essential workers, right? And hopefully it's made all of us realize how important they are. Uh, Some of the workers that I think it's fair to say that a lot of us have taken for granted uh, before the virus. So a story in the magazine, as I mentioned, takes us back to 1902 to help us really think about these essential workers. Susan Burfield is projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg News from Brooklyn. Uh, she wrote this story. Uh, we'll get to her in a moment. But with us right now is Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the phone from Brooklyn. And Joel, Jason and I were just talking about Um, Amazon, which, as you know, is kind of in a bit of a PR nightmare for how it's treating some of its warehouse workers and others and for getting rid of a whistleblower. But you do wonder, uh, this pandemic, these social ills that have been out there and are really being laid bare, you know, how we will come out on the other side. Will we totally ignore it or will we work to make it a better society for everyone? Uh, You know, there's a lot of questions out there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that you get right to the heart of it there. Um, and, and you know, just throughout, you know, history, I, there's been these flashpoints. And I think um, one of the things that this, this shows is like there there is always this silent agreement, I guess, between labor and employers. Right. And when you when you come to a flashpoint like this, you know, it, it lays it bare and like a pandemic like what we're enduring right now. You, you can kind of go through a cast of companies and it just exposes that in in the very essence is like, you know, employment and labor. I, this is a conversation that um, that we need to have. And I think the thing that, you know, if you really want to bring that um, into focus now, the thing that's really, um, I think, unique uh, if, if forever for all times, right, is is this idea of gig employment. And that gig employment thing is, um, you know, not having a worker who's a full employee. I think that is a conversation that we're going to just have more and more of. And, you know, the 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 fact that, you know, like a state like California has sort of been really at the forefront of this mm-hmm. shows how how some people are, are beginning to, to look at that relationship, too. And so, Susan, come on in here, Susan Burfield, Projects and Investigations Reporter for Bloomberg, uh, author of this piece and a book, a new book. So tell us about what you found about this coal strike, because for those of us who don't know about it, there's a bit of a, wait, what? But tell us how this connects. Yeah. So first, you have to think back to 1902. So Theodore Roosevelt was the president Um, He had come to power unexpectedly after McKinley had been assassinated by a former factory worker. And so there was a general sense of unease. You know, America was an industrializing nation. It was urbanizing nation. There was a lot of immigration. A lot of the issues and tensions that we face now were very prevalent there. And so when the coal uh, miners went on strike, um, Roosevelt at first was a little bit unsure about what to do. Uh, his main, you know, concern was 
social order, but he also wanted to show that he as a president and his administration would be on the side of workers and would stand up for them when the time came. And so what is the main thing you take away that we should be thinking about in the context of the current government and maybe even our own sort of commercial or personal response here? Yeah, so, you know, the the strike lasted five months. Um, Winter was approaching. There was a real possibility that millions of people would be without heat and light. Um, The post office was threatening to shut down. Steel mills were threatening to lay off workers. And it was a real crisis in America. And, you know, one of the things it revealed uh, was that the coal miners were really the essential workers of their time. And so, you know, much like today, it was um, it was a bit of a shock, you know, for people to realize that the the kind of luxuries that they have, the convenience of their life was dependent on people who were often underpaid or poorly paid, uh, were vulnerable, you know, worked in dangerous jobs. And what Roosevelt suggested was that it wasn't and shouldn't only be up to the companies to do right by their workers. So they should but that the government also had a responsibility to step in and to protect them and to you know, make sure that they were working for a living wage um, and that really overall it was an economy that worked for everyone. So I think those are the lessons and what's hopeful about this moment and then you know, what also is, is uh, as I call it in the piece, a kind of haunting question that we're all going to be faced with. You know, Susan, um, I also just want to point out, um, hey, first of all, Hour of Fate, um, again, we're talking about Susan's book, which we excerpted in the magazine, and just congratulations, uh, like just a high five from over here. Um, Jason Carroll, I got <laughs> a personal you. copy. I got a personal copy. Which That's a we quick did flex. A socially, we, did a, we did a socially distant um, drop-off, so she <laughs> left it on her stoop, and I picked it up uh in a in an envelope that said Joel on it. So I was like very honored with that. <laughs> yes. um, available but, available to a select few people. There you go. <laughs> so I, I wanna I wanna just um say though, you know, I I think that, you know, even though it's a historical book, I think there are lessons from history that are gonna just prove really powerful right now. And I think Susan's book gives us a sense of that. Um, Susan, if I if I could kind of bring it I, I spent a, a second at the, at the beginning kind of just talking about gig workers sort of being a modern day equivalent. And, you know, that is such um, a a topic now when we think about Uber drivers or Instacart workers and like they've just we've sort of taken them for granted until suddenly we realize, you know, all of these people are are on a front line in a way that um, um, are are integral to the modern economy. And yet, you know, we weren't thinking about them in the same way before all of this. And, you know, California is one model of how, how um, a state is looking out for people in a different way. You know, how would how do you think uh, uh, like a, a Roosevelt would view, you know, California's policy um, in all of this? And, and is that enough? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, uh, you know, Roosevelt really ushered in the progressive era in America. And, and it was really the first you know, time that a president kind of came out very directly and said, we in the government, we as Americans need to provide a square deal for everyone with his term. You know, then later we had the New Deal and we had the Great Society, but 
first there was a square deal, and it was the idea that you know everybody should have you know as an equal a chance as possible, and that yeah. you know everyone should be equally protected. And so, while I think Roosevelt would be supportive of what California or any other state is doing, or for that matter, what any single company is doing, right? He really believed in the power of the federal government. Yeah. Well, and I. I ha- I have to say, I love, too, this idea of COVID capitalism, uh, and we'll have to see where the country goes, whether whether it just helps to benefit those that have already benefited a lot, or whether we rewrite some of what's been going on uh, in our society. Susan Burfield, check out her book. We'll hopefully talk to you more about that. And of course, our thanks to Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's do a little Business Week economics and sort of a special edition today because we want to really focus on what's going on between the U.S. and China. And we try to catch up this time more or less every week with Andy Brown. He is editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. He joins us on the phone from New Hampshire. And Andy, I have to say, we were talking on our planning call earlier today and realizing everything that is going on between the U.S. and China, some comments made by both sides. You were the guy we needed to talk to, so we really appreciate <laughs> you uh, taking some time here. Give us the context, because this has been complicated, to say the least, but it feels like it got turned up to 11, as they say, over the past uh, 24, 48 hours. Yeah, so, you know, this whole blame game between the U.S. and China, as you say, uh, has now gone to a whole new level. Um, and what's happened now is that... Uh, Donald Trump uh, has threatened um, uh, China with uh, uh, with trade retaliations, um, you know, with tariffs on Chinese goods. So, you know, here you are, um, here we are, sort of teetering on the edge. We're certainly on the in a, in a in a recession, teetering on the edge of a depression. And the last thing the world needs now uh, is a trade war. Uh, and it looks as though we may be getting one. Well, and yet, exactly. I mean, Andy, it makes me wonder, you know, what are the conversations that are going on in the White House at this point? But that's, you know, it, it was interesting. There was a story, we talked about this earlier on our broadcast, 60 Minutes this weekend, looking at farmers who we know were hurt in the trade wars, and they're still struggling because they're not necessarily getting some of the stimulus money uh, out of these bailout packages. But yeah, this, you know, trade tensions, a pushback on globalization just exacerbates uh, what's going on in the economy, the negative side to it, and makes it much more difficult to come out of it, doesn't it? Right. So, you know, people, people forget, we, you know, half of all of the tariffs that um, Trump put on China are still in place. And, you know, uh, it's a myth that um, the Chinese are paying for this and that this is a sort of a, a net budget plus for the U.S., um, U.S. importers, of course, uh, pay these tariffs and then pass it along um, to the consumer. And so, you know, it was bad enough um, you know, before before COVID-19 came along. Uh, and now you have U.S. consumers who um, many of whom are out of work, paying additional prices um, for basic products. So, I mean, it's an even heavier burden now for the U.S. economy. And Trump is threatening to reignite the whole trade war um, uh, in re- in, as, as retaliation or as punishment um, for uh, China's failures in the early stages of this pandemic when there was clearly a cover-up. 
Um, you know, but but what, what what's happening now is is you have all of these allegations that you know uh, this the COVID nineteen came out of a out of a lab uh, in Wuhan. So the scientific community say, look, it's possible, um, and this is the consensus of the scientific community. It's possible, but not likely. Uh, it probably wasn't man-made. Uh, or, you know, artificially engineered, probably came out of an animal. Uh, and Trump and Pompeo keep saying, well, you know, there's evidence and you're getting this drip, 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 but, you know, there is no evidence. So, you know, right now the Chinese are saying, okay, this plays right into their own narrative, which is this all basically it's all about the White House deflecting blame for their own uh, a late catastrophic response at a federal level to to the to, to coronavirus. Well, and I do wonder, Andy, too, how much the Chinese. Not that that you know this lessens the severity of what Trump is is doing essentially in, in in impacting the relationships between the two nations even more severely. But how much do the Chinese also say he's running for re-election? He's playing the game again. Well, yeah, that that. You know that that's that's exactly what they're saying, and the, and, and, and the Chinese, in their own way, they're playing, you know, a a, a similar game. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've had spoke, uh, statements from Chinese foreign ministry spokesmen, um, you know, spinning this this conspiracy theory that it that the coronavirus came out of the U.S. military during these military games that took place, um, you know, in in Wuhan. So both sides are are, are playing this. But, you know, the, the, this is having real impact right now on the economy. The markets are down today because they're very worried uh, that in the middle of this global pandemic, we may say, see uh, a, a, an eruption of, of, of trade tensions. I, 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 just, saw, I just saw that the, the renminbi, the Chinese currency, uh, is sliding. It's almost at a historic low, um, you know, as a, as a result of, of these tensions. Well, and it's interesting, you know, Andy, we heard from Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent, earlier that China feels like something that actually the Democrats and the Republicans, at least in broad strokes, can kind of agree on. Do you agree with that? And what are the implications of sort of finding something that – finding something to agree on in a place where nobody agrees about anything? We only have about a minute left. Yeah, I mean, not not only do they uh, are they agreeing on it, but I think they're going to be competing with each other um, in this election to be to be tough on China. Um, you know, it's a it's it's a China China bashing is going to be a central theme, I think, of this uh, of this election, the presidential election. Wow. Yeah. No. I mean, it's interesting it's to to think about that too, because you do see it, you know, coming down. On you know, even if you're just sort of comparing and contrasting tweets, uh, you know, between the president and uh, presumptive nominee, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, fascinating. Well, uh, you know, we ask, he delivers. That's why we love Andy Brown. Uh, great context, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy, joining us on the phone from New Hampshire. Of course, you know, he's the former China editor, senior correspondent, columnist for the Wall Street Journal. So. He, and he grew up uh, largely uh, over in Asia and Hong Kong and elsewhere and lived in Beijing. So he really knows his stuff and knows how complicated but also how important this is and how it not going well 
could really have vast long-term well, implications. And that's the thing. They're, you know, the game's being played on both sides, right? But there are implications to all of this, and we can't forget that, uh, especially when it comes to the impact on individuals in each of the countries. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Not really, but it's we know retailers here. I know are already starting to think about it and what they're thinking about doesn't look good. I was not excited from what it says, but excited to read the story because it's so smart. Uh, and by one of our top reporters, Matt Townsend, he joins us on the phone from Brooklyn. So this isn't great. Uh, retail sector clearly suffering here, Matt, but already Christmas looking grim. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, there's a lot of thought out there that at some point we'll have this nice recovery coming into the fourth quarter and consumers will bounce back. So we looked at it and, you know, companies like Fitch, the ratings company, I mean, they're already baking in as much as a 10% decline in sales for discretionary companies. Um, And it really boils down to two things. One, the consumer. They expect and other firms expect the consumer to still be under pressure, whether it's high unemployment, the threat of the virus, also shopping in a in a retail environment that has all this social distancing might not be that great of an experience that could dampen sales. So there's a lot of problems with the consumer that could lead to a blue, what we're calling a, quote, blue Christmas. Yeah, I mean, I just think there are so many questions, and I think you just hit it, you know, and I do wonder what it means for retailers. I mean, Macy's is opening up, right, Matt? And I just think about, do I want to go in there where, how do you keep a place of those, of those, you know, that size, how do you keep it totally clean, safe? I, I just think it's difficult. It, it, it is. And, you know, so far we've seen from some of the early states opening up, um, or even for some of the retailers that have been open the whole time, like a Walmart, um, you know, they're ha- or Target, they're having some issues with their in-store sales. And the other thing is, you know, people just expect, oh, well, if people don't want to go to stores, they'll just shop online. But the problem with that is online e-commerce is a much lower margin uh, business for most retailers because they have to do all the shipping and the return shipping. And then on top of that, um, impulse buys. So the whole point of a store is you walk in and you buy stuff that you didn't go there for. You know, the whole thing, if you go there to buy milk at the grocery store and you end up walking out with a full cart. Well, online, that doesn't really happen as much. So that's, that's basically the fundamental way a lot of these retailers work. So if more store sales going to online could impact margins, margins in a big way. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also, I, I mean, not for nothing, we could be in a horrible economy by the time it gets to Christmas time. And, you know, people just are not going to want to be uh, spending a lot of money, presumably. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's hard to model this, like has been said ad nauseum throughout this whole thing, is that there's nothing to compare this to. Right. Um, and, you know, another thing we wrote about in the story is that there's this other side to this as well, whereas, you know, retailers are financially distressed. Obviously, we saw J. Crew file for bankruptcy the past 24 hours. Um, and there's a big question mark about will they be, be able to even get enough products in the, on the shelves right. to, to meet demand? They're, the supply chains have been upended. And, you know, we've reported about this a couple of times already in the past few weeks is that vendors are very upset and feel very burned by the retail industry because they basically had months of ordered can- months of orders canceled on them. Mm-hmm. And they're stuck with all these goods, nowhere to sell them. So there's this frostiness between the retailers and their vendors. 
And, you know, it's, it's becoming dicey to ship to a retailer at this point, knowing, not knowing what's going to happen. So, Matt, let me just ask you as a consumer, because I've been watching this, and, you know, my daughter and I, like, it, if we see something that's online, and we're like, I'm going to wait, because I think these, you know, the retailers Prices are, are going to go down. Yeah, totally. And you yeah. do see it kind of move around a little bit, and, and how retailers are keeping track of what's in your, you know, basket, and they're like, hey, did you see, you know, now it's on sale. So I do wonder, for a consumer, will there be lots of deals, or not necessarily, because as you say, supply chains, but I, I do wonder about all that old inventory that's just sitting around, and they've got to get rid of it. Yeah, no, I think there will be deals or there will be, you know, a flood of inventory going to the, the discounters and the TJ Maxx's of the world um, and the Marshalls and things like that. But there is, there is that consumer behavior where you're expecting to see bigger discounts at this point because you, you hear the news about all these retailers in trouble. And for the most part, we haven't seen, you know, wholesale liquidations of products yeah. or anything like that. So. We got to talk, talk J. Crew. Yeah, talk to us about yeah. J. Crew because the, you know this is obviously an incredibly well-known brand. You know, a troubled last decade in in many ways for the company specifically. Some comings and goings at the at the very top. What ultimately took it down? You know, J. Crew won over. You know, a lot of these companies they went over a generation of consumers. You know, they won over the Gen Xers. You know, in the nineties and everything like that, and they just were never able to win the next generation for whatever reason, whether it was competitors, fast fashion, um, you know, Mickey Drexler, obviously the ar- architect of the, of the brand. Um, did he lose his way? Did the brand lose its way? I mean, there's a lot of things that are a part of this. But a, a big thing is the consumer really just moved on, and they yeah. never were able to win that next generation. Like my generation loved J. Crew, the generation below us, who are now in their early 30s, 20s. Yeah. Did not did not go to J. Crew as as a as a as as, as bigly as 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 much as we did. Yeah. yeah. No, it's shopping. it's really true. They're shopping differently. That's and for there sure, yeah. and there's the whole private equity angle too, which which obviously uh, saddled the company uh, with some debt and you know maybe made some decisions that ultimately uh, ultimately took it down. So uh, it's never too early to talk Christmas though. No, it is never. It's never. And as I said guys. at the top of the show, though, all I really want for Christmas is a plate of your Christmas cookies. That's you will it. Get, you will get a plate of Christmas cookies. All right. Cookies. That's good. All right. Matt Townsend. You give me the uh, flour. Like I said, I'll get you right, the Christmas yeah, cookies. I'll get you the flour. <laughs> that, that'll be the deal. That'll be, we'll do some bartering here. Matt Townsend, retail reporter for Bloomberg. A really great story. It's one of the most read. Uh, check it out on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Uh, we'll send it out via the Twitter as well. We need to keep an eye on Macy's, right? Yes. Yeah. See how, how they do through all this because they're already in a tough state. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. David Dietz is back with us, President and Chief Investment Officer at Point View Wealth Management, joining us once again on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. David, nice to have you here on a day where we're pretty much now at our highs of the session, but it's not been a, a big mover kind of day, but we're definitely off our lows. Um, tell me, you know, here we are, what? 
week seven, week eight here when it comes to working from home for many of us with the virus. What's your take on the economic outlook, the market outlook, and, and what it all means for investors? So, uh, Carol, uh, thanks for having me on here. Um, we really, in, in some ways, it's almost a more difficult time than it was seven weeks ago because here, of course, your market is up close to 30% from the apparent bottom March 23rd, yet there's still tremendous uncertainty as to where we're going with the coronavirus. When are we going to see a vaccine? When will sufficient testing be done? Uh, Where are the therapeutics and so forth? We're getting glimmers of hope, but still nothing definite. Um, But prices are up higher. And so, you know, the question is, has the low-hanging fruit been picked? And now should we move to the sidelines or what? And with respect to our clients, Basically, it's all about your time horizon. If you're a longer-term investor, I think you can do well. If you're short-term oriented, I think you're going to see some volatility return. And so where do you go here, David? I mean, like, what are the types of stocks? So let's assume you've got a long-term perspective, because if you've got a short-term perspective, as you said, like, that's a whole different discussion. But let's assume you're long-term. I got to ask you, because it's one of our favorite names to talk to you about, about Wells Fargo. Sure. So, you know, here we are. Interest rates are at some of the all-time lows. In fact, many people are worried about us ultimately going negative. Well, all, low interest rates are anathema to financial service companies. Right. If you're an insurance company, for example, you can't make anything when you collect your premiums before paying them out. If you're a bank, there's no spread between what you're paying your depositors and what you're getting for your mortgages and so forth. So, of course, that's where we are now. So the question is, where will we be several years out? And I think that if confidence returns, if we can, if we can get past this coronavirus, I think the economy will come back. I think that demand for loans will come back. I think you'll see some more inflation. I'll push interest rates up. So I think that is just what the doctor ordered for these financials. And so then the question is, which financial? I like Wells Fargo just because it has, you know, one of the best coast-to-coast franchises. It's historically been a very good underwriter, very conservative with the loans they extend. And they're focused on, you know, middle market, retail. They're not in the more volatile trading area. And of course, the stock was 65 just 26 months ago. Now pick it up at 27 with a 7% dividend. That looks pretty good for me if you have a, you know, if you're looking more than a couple months out. Well, and I also have to think that part of the play, David, has to be that if you're looking at some of the big banks that are so involved, certainly in the mortgage market, I mean, how many consumers probably have a mortgage with Wells Fargo or a home equity with Wells Fargo? I mean, on the other side of this, the bigger players are probably going to manage, even if it gets tough, they're going to do you know the best compared with some of the other players. You are so right, Carol. I mean, often tough times allows the biggest players in the market to expand market share as smaller, less well-capitalized, less well-known, less efficient players kind of fall off the table as it were. I think Wells Fargo can get the maximum bang for its buck in terms of advertising, uh, cross-selling, all those good things. One thing I do want to ask you, Joe Weisenthal, he and I think it's Tracy Alloway, they put out five things to start your day every day, uh, different editions. And one of the things that he brought out, and we've talked about this, whether we're looking at airlines, retail, that 
that if you believe in capitalism, you know, company A should be allowed to put company B out of business if they're doing a better job at that. But I do wonder about what the impact is on a good macro policy. What is it What's going to go be better for us, certainly going through this crisis, on the other side of it in terms of helping out the economy? And I do wonder what you think about providing assist to some of the smaller players that are out there and how important that is in terms of the overall health of the U.S. economy and of the overall U.S. market. Wow, that's a great question. And I think normally, I think most uh, investors and, and economists say for capitalism to survive, um, there has to be failure as well as success. And if you prop up everyone, no one fails. You end up with these zombie entities, and then capital is not reallocated from um, the weak, unsuccessful to those who have a better mousetrap. That's what you normally want. This situation has been a little bit different because there was so no one could really plan for it. No one, no one forecast it. And so I think what the Federal Reserve is trying to do, as well as Congress, is to provide some sort of safety net so that no one fails, at least because of the coronavirus. But there's no question about it. After we get past that, then the prop should be taken out, and then you should uh, um, thrive on your merits and fail if you can't be of use to consumers. So who else do you like here in, in this market, David, uh, in terms of things that, things that you hold that you're excited about? Well, you know, never waste a good crisis. And, right. you know, as much as I admire Warren Buffett, and I agree with him, America's going to do great over a long haul, I do not see in America without the airlines. You can't get to Florida, Vegas, Disney, Hawaii. It doesn't work. I think the airlines are ultimately going to make it. It may take a little bit longer. So I want to go with the bluest of the blue chips, Southwest Airlines, which has beaten the S&P 500 since it first came public in 1971 by about three to one. It's even beaten the S&P 500 from the low point of the last crisis. Now it's down by about 55%, but very little debt. The most efficient, simple fare prices, free check bags, solid customer services, lower union exposure. I think this comes out. It's the largest of the domestic carriers. I think this comes out very solidly. In fact, Gary Kelly just the other day, I think Sunday, said he thought the first week of April was the worst period for his yeah. company and business is picking up. So at a 52-week low, um, uh, I think this is an interesting speculation going forward. Unless you think all the airlines are going to be nationalized, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, yeah. there's a conversation I was listening to this morning on Bloomberg Radio about this whole idea of like the Chinese coming in with money. But that is going to be there's going to be a lot of pushback, certainly, whether it's CFIUS reviews uh, and you know politicians yeah, saying, I have a "Wait hard a minute," time seeing that. I, that, that I agree. I'm dubious. I agree. I totally agree. Um, David Dietz, thank you so much. Take care of yourself. Uh, he mentioned Southwest Airlines stocks down almost 49% so far this year and taking another hit, uh, no doubt, on those Warren Buffett comments and backing out of airlines. Uh, Southwest is down about 6% in today's session. David Dietz over at Point View Wealth Management, Jason. Yeah, so good to catch up with him and good mm -hmm. to talk some names. We always love uh, hearing what's on his mind. And I have to say, he's been a Wells Fargo bull for a long time. Love talking to him about that, even in its darkest days when they were settling with the government, couldn't find a CEO. Uh, he stuck with it. So we'll see if uh, he ultimately is right. Well, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Not really, but it's we know retailers. Up here. I know, are already starting to think about it and what they're thinking about. 
doesn't look good. I was not excited from what it says, but excited to read the story because it's so smart. Uh, and by one of our top reporters, Matt Townsend, he joins us on the phone from Brooklyn. So this isn't great. Uh, retail sector clearly suffering here, Matt, but already Christmas looking grim. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, there's a lot of thought out there that at some point we'll have this nice recovery coming into the fourth quarter and consumers will bounce back. So we looked at it and, you know, companies like Fitch, the ratings company, I mean, they're already baking in as much as a 10% decline in sales for discretionary companies. Um, And it really boils down to two things. One, the consumer. They expect and other firms expect the consumer to still be under pressure, whether it's high unemployment, the threat of the virus, also shopping in a in a retail environment that has all this social distancing might not be that great of an experience that could dampen sales. So there's a lot of problems with the consumer that could lead to a blue, what we're calling a quote, blue Christmas. Yeah. I mean, I just think there are so many questions and I think you just hit it, you know, and I do wonder what it means for retailers. I mean, Macy's is opening up right, Matt. And I just think about, do I want to go in there where, how do you keep a place of those, of those, you know, that size, how do you keep it totally clean, safe? I, I just think it's difficult. It, it, it is. And, you know, so far we've seen from some of the early states opening up, um, or even for some of the retailers that have been open the whole time, like a Walmart, um, you know, they're ha- or Target, they're having some issues with their in-store sales. And the other thing is, you know, people just expect, oh, well, if people don't want to go to stores, they'll just shop online. But the problem with that is online e-commerce is a much lower margin uh, business for most retailers because they have to do all the shipping and the return shipping. And then on top of that, um, impulse buys. So the whole point of a store is you walk in and you buy stuff that you didn't go there for. You know, the whole thing, if you go there to buy milk at the grocery store and you end up walking out with a full cart. Well, online, that doesn't really happen as much. So that's, that's basically the fundamental way a lot of these retailers work. So if more store sales going to online, could impact margins in a big way. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also, I I mean, not for nothing, we could be in a horrible economy by the time it gets to Christmas time. And, you know, people just are not going to want to be spending a lot of money, presumably. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's it's hard to model this, like has been said ad nauseum throughout this whole thing, is that there's nothing to compare this to. Right. Um, And, you know, another thing we wrote about in the story is that there's this other side to this as well, whereas, you know, retailers are financially distressed. Obviously, we saw J. Crew file for bankruptcy the past 24 hours. Um, and there's a big question mark about will they be, be able to even get enough products in the, on the shelves right. to, to meet demand? They're, the supply chains have been upended. And, you know, we've reported about this a couple of times already in the past few weeks is that Vendors are very upset and feel very burned by the retail industry because they basically had months of ordered can- months of orders canceled on them. Mm-hmm. And they're stuck with all these goods, nowhere to sell them. So there's this frostiness between the retailers and their vendors, and you know it's it's becoming dicey to ship to a retailer at this point, knowing not knowing what's going to happen. So Matt, let me just ask you as a consumer because I've been watching this, and you know my daughter and I like it, if we see something that's online, and we're like, I'm going to wait because I think these. You know the retailers Prices are, are going to go down. Yeah, totally. And you yeah. do see it kind of move around a little bit, and and how retailers are keeping track of what's in your you know basket, and they're like, hey, did you see? You know, now it's on sale. So I do wonder for a consumer, will there be lots of deals, or not necessarily? Because as you say, supply chains. But I I do wonder about all that old inventory that's just sitting around, and they've got to get rid of it. 
Yeah, no, I think there will be deals or there will be, you know, a flood of inventory going to the the discounters and the TJ Maxxes of the world um, and the Marshalls and things like that. But there is there is that consumer behavior where you're expecting to see bigger discounts at this point because you, you hear the news about all these retailers in trouble. And for the most part, we haven't seen, you know, wholesale liquidations of products yeah. or anything like that. So. We got to talk, talk J. Crew. Yeah, talk to us about yeah. J. Crew because the, you know this is obviously an incredibly well-known brand. You know, a troubled last decade in in many ways for the company specifically. Some comings and goings at the at the very top. What ultimately took it down? You know, J. Crew won over. You know, a lot of these companies they went over a generation of consumers. You know, they won over the Gen Xers. You know, in the nineties and everything like that, and they just were never able to win the next generation for whatever reason, whether it was competitors, fast fashion, um, you know, Mickey Drexler, obviously the architect of the the brand. Um, Did he lose his way? Did the brand lose its way? I mean, there's a lot of things that are a part of this. But a big thing is the consumer really just moved on, and they never were able to win that next generation. Like my generation loved J. Crew, the generation below us, who are now in their early 30s, 20s, yeah. Did not did not go to J Crew as as a, as a as 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 bigly as 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 much as we did. Yeah. yeah. No, they're it's re- it's really true. They're shopping differently. That's and there sure. and there's the whole private equity angle too, which which obviously uh, saddled the company uh, with some debt and you know maybe made some decisions that ultimately uh, ultimately took it down. So uh, it's never too early to talk Christmas though. No, it is never. It's never. And as I said at the top of the show, though, all I really want for Christmas is a plate of your Christmas cookies. That's it. You will get a plate of Christmas cookies. All right. That's good. All right. Matt Townsend. You give me the uh, flower. Like I said, I'll get you the Christmas cookies. I'll get you the flower. (laughs) That'll be the deal. That'll be it. We'll do some bartering here. Matt Townsend, retail reporter for Bloomberg. A really great story. It's one of the most read. Uh, Check it out on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Uh, we'll send it out via the Twitter as well. We need to keep an eye on Macy's, right? Yes. Yeah. We'll see how, how they do through all of this because they're already in a tough state. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.